Welcome to Turnpikers. This is our last uh, episode of the day that's being recorded at uh, Denver Startup Week. We have Kevin from Orderly Health joining us now. Welcome. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Um, we've decided to onboard a couple of the finalists or semifinalists for the uh, pitch competition that's part of uh, Denver Startup Week, and you guys are uh, in that group. What does that mean to you? What is that product? Let's hear all about what, what that's looking like. Uh, yeah, sure. So pitching is just fun. I mean, this is just a fun competition. It's a way for us to get a little bit more exposure. Uh, we didn't expect to win. We're excited to be part of the finalist group, and it was... That's a terrible thing to say. If you, if, <laughs> it's, it, I it, hope nobody here that's hearing that he doesn't expect... Well, you know, it's, I'm, I'm trying to make it as a true underdog story, right? So people uh, root for us. That's uh, your angle. But yeah, so what we do is we actually created a, uh, a chat bot, basically, for individuals to understand how much they spend on healthcare and understand their benefits better so that they can save money and get better care. Uh, so it's been, we actually sort of launched onto the scene last year at uh, Denver Startup Week. Uh, we moved here in June of last year, and Denver Startup Week was kind of the first chance that we got to get our name out there. So it's, it's fun to come full circle and have a chance to pitch in front of a bigger audience. Did you guys move out here for uh, Techstars? Is that no? Well, so uh, I was actually in San Francisco. My co-founder James, who was he was finishing up med school in Cincinnati, and the two of us got connected through his brother, who's a, a friend of mine, and we were doing kind of a long-distance relationship for about five months uh, last year. And when he finished med school, I, I was a product manager at uh, EA, like Electronic Arts, the, the video game company. And we decided that we wanted to move somewhere to start orderly. We re realized it had legs, and we were sort of considering different options. Ohio wasn't really on the list. Uh, San Francisco was, but uh, Denver just ended up winning out. There's a lot of cool things happening in the digital health space and the startup space in general. So it was, it was a great fit. So uh, you said orderly is kind of like a chat bot to help you understand uh, your medical bills how, or medical fees. Um, what was the inspiration? How, how did you guys come up with this? Yeah, so uh, I, my dad's a doctor. My mom's a nurse. I grew up around healthcare, and I think that I was always uh, the great white hype of my family to follow in the, the family business, I guess. Uh, I went to undergrad at Duke, and I, I was pre-med for about one hot second, uh, but I always paid attention to healthcare. So around August of 2014, I just went to the doctor and had a very pedestrian experience. I walked away with a bunch of questions about how much I was spending. And when I investigated to find out whether there were solutions to help me figure that out, you know, questions like, what is my premium? Uh, how much is left on my HSA? Did I get my contact lenses reimbursed? Super easy questions, but for whatever reason, they were really, really difficult to answer. Uh, so I walked away really frustrated, started to ask some friends in SF, hey, do you guys have this problem too, and how do you solve it? And everyone's like, oh, we don't. You know, I, I talked to a friend of mine who was a type 1 diabetic, and it turned into this two-hour expose about what he does to manage his expenses. And I, I walked away infuriated and frustrated. Actually, it was the first time I ever felt guilty about being healthy. So um, after that, we just kind of dove into it. Uh, orderly actually started as a mint.com analog. We were trying to be like a mint.com for healthcare, where we would create a, uh, a dashboard that people could use to understand their healthcare expenses. And then we got into Techstars with that idea, and we made a slight pivot because what we found was that uh, the engagement wasn't as high as we'd like. And on top of that, there's also a ton of solutions on the market already that we were partnering with. And we realized that by creating a chatbot, um, we could actually provide a platform for engagement that's unlike anything else on the market. So what we do is we actually eliminate some of the noise from other companies that are on the market. 
I'm spending quite a bit of time on building some chatbots right now. And, you know, the, the crux of a chatbot is, is sort of a no blind alleys kind of issue, right? And the products that have the fewest use cases and the fewest sort of task-driven opportunities that users might go down, the easier it is to create an awesome chat experience yep. um, because you can predictively understand that people come here to ask one, two, three, five questions and we can help solve those and go down the different um, chains of, of, of Q&A to get them to an answer. But what you're doing is, is not one, two, three, or four of those. It's people have, you know, hundreds of, of types of questions and queries and, and workflows and formats of discussion. So that's a big chatbot challenge. Uh, so tell us about how you guys are, are trying to, to manage that. I, I would imagine that your experience in, in building games, because games are sort of similar to that in that they don't, they have uh, lots of multi-use and multiplayer sort of scenarios, which end up in a magnitude of, of different scenarios. So how are you managing that? Yeah, that's right. Uh, I'm really glad that you brought that up because I do think it is a big challenge, but it's also one of the things that we consider ourselves to have a great advantage with the way that we're implementing a chatbot. So uh, one distinction I want to make is that we don't think that the the grand idea is around our chat or our AI. I, I actually think that there's a number of... Uh, there's a number of different companies out there that are making AI more or less a, a commodity. It's like AI as a service, right? So what we can do is we can use wh what's existing in the market now for different AI technologies, and we bring on all of these different solutions that already exist. Now, you bring up, you know, in healthcare, there's, there's hundreds, thousands of questions that people can ask, but we try to break them down into different categories. And what we do is we, we create what we consider triggering events. And so the example I would give is if, if somebody asks a question, am I covered for an MRI? Well, that triggers the source of uh, our information around benefits, right? It benefits and coverage. So we have APIs and, and third-party services that can answer around uh, benefits and coverage. If somebody asks a question about a medication, how much does a medication cost? Well, we can, that triggers an event for our, another partner that we use to get our pricing data for prescription medication. And when all else fails, this is actually a great advantage that we have and a different use case that it presents is uh, we have a human backstop. So if you get more than one error, everyone on our team gets alerted and it's all anonymized or whatever. But, but we can then go in and go into a, a back end that we've built to be able to answer your question. Because as a human, we can understand your question. We just need the sources of data to be able to do that. Uh, and so this actually opens up a great uh, potential partnerships with uh, nurse care coordinators and care practitioners, people who are actually on the hook to care for thousands of patients who have questions about their healthcare. We can use this as a platform for them to, to more or less make themselves much more scalable. Part of your response there, you were talking about privacy and, and not anonymization. Um, how do you guys handle uh, HIPAA and all the other compliance factors? Is is that a... Yeah, no, it's it's, uh, it's a good question. One is that, that even possible? Yeah. <laughs> no, honestly. Well, yes. I mean, because... The, the locus of security control isn't necessarily in your app. Yeah, so th there's a number of, of different issues that it comes... So one of the things that I think people forget about with HIPAA is that the P doesn't stand for privacy. It actually stands for portability. So really all you need to do, and, and I don't want to trivialize it, but... You'd like to switch it to broadcast. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. Uh, really what, um, what's important for us is to make sure that the user understands how their data is being uh, transmitted and, and who's seeing it. But once you get the user to basically say, yeah, you can be an agent for me to understand my healthcare data, 
well, then you more or less have that permission. And we don't share any of the data externally. And as far as the security goes, we actually use uh, other services. This is one of the reasons why our company couldn't have existed five years ago. There's all these you know, blank as a service companies that are out there. Uh, we use a company called Aptable. They're actually based here. They're, they're uh, doing great. Um, their CEO is based here. They're sort of a distributed uh, team. But Aptable helps us with uh, the, it's basically a HIPAA compliant Heroku, if people are familiar with Heroku. Uh, so that allows us to host our instance on Amazon Web Services, which makes it much easier for us to be compliant with HIPAA. We also use another Techstars company called Accountable HQ to handle a lot of the HIPAA compliance in terms of training our officers and making sure that we have uh, really strict guidelines in terms of who touches what data. And then there's uh, what we consider to be a, a Chinese wall between any data that we take in and obviously the employer. That's something that we you know, it's in our terms of service. We harp on it every time that we talk about it with a new customer. Uh, that's, that's a huge concern for, for individuals. If, if they're being offered this benefit through their, employer, through their employer, they don't want their employer to have any access to data about their personal health care. So we make sure that that's, that's all kept separate. So is that how you guys are doing uh, customer acquisition uh, these days is uh, via, via employers? Yeah, so we originally tried to go B2C. And what we found was that there was a, a massive hurdle to get over with people just signing up and then giving us their data. Because we can't offer any interesting insights or any value to them Without unless the we data. know their coverage and, and other information about them. So what we wanted to do was remove friction. So when we sign up, now we're B2B2C, and we sell to self-insured employers, and they offer our service as a benefit to their employees. And what that does is it gives us all of their claims and benefits data, so we can model their claims packet. So you have you know, three different plans on offer. Depending on what plan you choose, we can actually model that plan and answer your question specifically for the individual, while at the same time having all of your claims data. And that removes a lot of the hurdle because when you sign up, it's actually great. You, we have a roster of people who are employed by the companies that, we, that uh, use us. And you, you simply authenticate. You link your phone the same way that you would with a you know, two-factor authentication. And then we never share any PHI, any protected health information or personally identifiable information over text. It's not a secure channel. So in the event that you ask a question where PHI or PII would be requested, we can send you a short link and then you can log into the orderly site uh, behind a password or, or biometrics on your phone. Awesome. Uh, last question before we get thrown out of here. So tell us about where we see Orderly Health fundraising, stage of business, kind of where are you with that whole thing you guys, when did you guys do Techstars? Yeah, we graduated, Summer, we graduated Techstars in, in Natty's May. Natty's last in class. May. Yeah, Natty's last class in May in Boulder. Got so it. yeah, I mean, we are uh, pre our pre-seed round or pre our seed round, I guess I should say. Uh, so mm. where we are now is we are, we're trying to close a couple more uh, pilot deals. We've got our first paying customer that we're launch we launched uh, with a limited group last week, and we're rolling out to an, um, a bigger group this week and then to the whole Boulder Valley School District in about a month. And we've got a, a bunch of other pilots under negotiation, and we're just trying to uh, you know, prove out our model, uh, test our hypothesis, and get some data in the door so that we can go out to the market and, tell, and show investors that, hey, this is actually a really engaging platform that not only do users like using, but the companies that are using it are, are actually seeing benefit from it. So the, the good RXs, the save on medicals, the uh, uh, Express of the scripts, world. Yeah, all those exactly. kinds of people. Exactly. Awesome. Yeah. Well, that's great, Kevin. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much, guys. Be back. Thank here. you. We are here live 
Well, we're recording live. You're not listening to this live from Denver Startup Week. Uh, we've got Anthony Franco, uh, founder of MC Squares, a longtime friend of mine from back in the uh, effective UI days. Um, thanks for being here. Thanks, thanks for having me. And I also wanted to thank uh, Trip for the wonderful brownies that he brought. These things are just <laughs> amazing. I've never had brownies this great. <laughs> so tell us about uh, MC Squares. Uh, how did you guys... Uh, come up with this idea, what brought you kind of from the uh, digital world to the physical world and excited yeah, to get the whole process. Maybe MC squares are handheld whiteboards. <laughs> there you go. That easily snap together on a wall to create larger collaborative whiteboards. Um, so that's the elevator, the ABC statement. But um, ultimately, the idea came from, well, I barely graduated high school. And it was because I was spent most of my time with my nose buried in an Apple IIe computer um, and didn't diversify my studies. And I was, I was an inter typical picked-on computer nerd in school. The, the reason why I became an entrepreneur is because I couldn't, I couldn't hold the job any, any other way. I, was, I didn't know how to work within a team. As I grew in my businesses, um, I had to grow as a leader. And then about six years ago, I was running a C-level workshop and um, thought it was successful. And a woman came out of that workshop and, who had been completely quiet in the room. And she said... I have this idea for, to solve the problem that you guys were talking about. And her idea turned out to be transformational for the executive team. Um, and I asked her, why didn't you speak up? She says, well, I'm an introvert. I don't like risking sharing my ideas in those kinds of rooms. And all of a sudden it kind of came back like, oh, I get it. I totally understand. And so I set out to, in essence, solve her problem. I've been solving technical problems all my life and not solving human problems. So Comsero, who's, who's the holding company for MC Squares, is all about creating collaborative products to help people like her and you know, even extroverts <laughs> collaborate and be creative in, in team environments. All right, I'm holding an MC Squares panel. Explain to me how this works exactly. Is this like a smart board that kids have in, in grade school? Like that's the only thing that I have that looks similar, like, similar to this. Yeah, so uh, the product you're holding, there is no technology in it. It is only an analog whiteboard. There, now there's an app that you, helps you capture stuff off a whiteboard that's been, that's been um, written on. The novel piece about this is it takes, in essence, democratizes classrooms or meeting rooms by taking the whiteboard off the wall. So taking the facilitator out of the mix in other words, I can't point to you and say, give me your idea or give me your, you know, your idea. And I don't get to say what goes up on the board. Instead, I hand the board around. And that intimate space that an individual has does a couple of things. So I have, now have a whiteboard, and I'm told, give me your three best ideas to solve X problem. And that space, first of all, I, I'm forced to write something down. I don't have to volunteer. I'm forced. Uh, secondly, I, I get to create in my own personal space which is far less risky. And if I make a mistake, it's dry erase, so I can erase it and rewrite it. And then once that thought process, that private thought process happens, then um, we're at, we ask the boards back and they go back up on the wall. So it's an analog collaboration to, tool. It's not necessarily... Today, a, it's, yeah. an analog, it, it's an analog collaboration tool. We've been in market for about six months. We are raising capital to make it digital to compete in the space that you're talking about, the interactive display market. Got it. So along the, with this, do you guys have, you know, kind of training materials? Are you, like, f helping facilitate creative sessions, anything along those lines? Or is it you're giving the product and, and, and letting those folks go loose? Yeah, um, not yet. So uh, 
we've been in, right now we're focused entirely on an early adopters. So all we have to do is hand them an MC square and say, it's a tiled whiteboard system. The light bulb goes on. They're like, oh my God, I could use this. And they start applying it themselves. That's about 20% of the people that we talk to. The other 80% is all about content creation and partnership relationships and, and developing value-added resellers that can create content specifically for MC squares. Uh, so you mentioned that this is uh, just one of uh, potentially many products that you guys are developing without uh, divulging anything top secret. What are some other kind of concepts and general tools that you guys are working on? Well, we, we are... How do I not divulge? Well, obviously, we're talking about competing in the interactive display market. We ultimately are making products that you can hold, like physical products that are just subtly supported by software or technology. Um, so the other products that we're working on are all about in-person teamwork and facilitating both collaborative uh, sessions or uh, collaborative team environments um, and dynamically changing environments, um, all with just a little bit, just the right amount of tech introduced in them to make it a little bit better than products that are out there today. So uh, tell us about sort of your personal, you know, shift from uh, running Effective UI, which is sort of an interactive consulting firm here uh, in town, which is still around and, uh, and active and successful to, to doing this. Was this, um, was this something you were thinking about for a long time, or is this sort of just an avocation? Or to tell us about how you make the shift from those two. Because these, these are very different businesses. Yeah, very different businesses. Uh, well, that meeting that I was talking about that inspired inspired me to create a collaborative company happened when I was still at Effective UI. So the inspiration came from there. And then uh, I had been working in as, as a software developer and as a software architect for decades. And I, and I really wanted to get into um, physical product development. And so that passion for um, uh, great design and physical product development and desire to get in physical product development and wanting to solve that woman's problem kind of came together in, in this new startup. Uh, so it was, it, it was fortuitous that all three of those things were able to come together in this. And do you still have a relationship with Effective UI? Uh, yeah, I love the folks. I go in there every, all the time, talk to the folks. I don't have a job there anymore. I left, uh, left last year. But yeah, obviously very fond of the folks there. Rebecca is doing a stellar job continuing to grow the company as CEO. So yeah, um, great relationship with them. Going from the digital side to the physical, tell us about the actual process of creating a physical product. Like if our uh, listeners wanted to uh, do or make something of their own, how did you guys uh, start from ideation to prototyping to manufacturing to distribution. Yeah, I could probably spend two hours on this. Let me try to summarize it. First of all, it reminded me more of the DVD, of the CD-ROM days when you had to write software for CD-ROMs, which basically meant if you wrote something that was a bug, you were hosed because you, you delivered the CD-ROMs. There's no way to, like on the web today, if you write a bug, it's not a big deal. You just iterate and every two weeks. You're planning for fixing the bugs. It's even more exemplified in physical products because it's a CD-ROM is still, what even then was really inexpensive to reship out. This, if you make a mistake, um, it's really expensive. Uh, it's so, like a book. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yes, like a book. If you get something wrong in a book, it's still, you can still read it. If you get something wrong in the manufacture of a product, it just doesn't work. You cannot, 
you can't take it back. And, well, you have to take it back and ship a whole new product out. So as for how I made the transition from software to digital is being an engineer, I decided to go and take CAD modeling classes. So I went and learned SolidWorks, self-taught injection molding, and became, in essence, a junior level um, product engineer. Um, I think it's, as, as a founder, for me anyway, I find it incredibly debilitating if you can't call BS on people that are actually doing the product design. So I wanted to learn how to do that myself. And now um, I can start farming that stuff out with knowledge on, with a little bit of knowledge on thermodynamics and how things are injected molded versus in extruded molded or, or 3D printed. And, and so, um, yeah, I'll keep, I'll keep it to that. Where are you guys manufacturing these then? Are they here in the U.S.? Uh, we, we are manu we're manufacturing the parts overseas mm -hmm. and doing final assembly here. What about, uh, for people uh, that, that are listening to the podcast, is there a community of people who are sort of coming up with, uh, that support one another in the, in the world of producing sort of uh, physical goods and sort of, the, uh, this is sort of a maker style startup. What does that group look like? We talked to, uh, obviously, a lot of people who are building software and, and hardware. Um, what does that group look like? Yeah, it's, a, it's a great question. Actually, um the group is, fra there's a fragmented group of folks. And generally speaking, if you want to make a physical product, you go to a makerspace. And there's, there's plenty, there's Tinker Mill. Um, I'm going to forget the other ones that are out here, but there's quite a few um, makerspaces out here that have incredible resources. I never utilized a, a makerspace. Um, instead, I, because of my exits, I had enough capital to buy my own 3D printing equipment and, and was able to spend the time to do it myself. Um, and I also found that Makerspace was too odd a mix um, of people that want to sell stuff on Etsy or people that want to make one thing, not necessarily built for entrepreneurs that want to build things in mass. Um, so I'm actually, I actually just um, started a project here downtown working with the city's Office of Economic Development to create a space that's more mature for entrepreneurs that are working on physical products. We'll have Fulfillment center, a fulfillment center and a warehouse and a maker lab specifically for entrepreneurs. So hopefully I'll get to be a part of a community that is more for physical product That's entrepreneurs. Awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Before we wrap, tell everybody here how they can get in touch with you and how they can learn more about MC Squares and maybe anything that you guys are looking out for, whether it's people or obviously you're looking for that, that, that space, but sounds like that's underway. Where yeah, the space is, we just closed on the building and starting to do the development on it. Where's now. that going to be? It's, uh, Arap it's the new Arapahoe Square area right across the street from where the new PBS complex is going. Yep. Um, so ballpark district. Um, is to it get a hold cool of cool brick buildings? Yeah, it's the two... Nice. Good job. Yeah. Um, like they're falling apart right yeah. now. We have some work to do on them. Nice. Um, uh, super excited about that. Uh, so to get a hold of me, uh, Twitter handle is just at Anthony Franco. Um, you can find out more about MC Squares just by direct messaging me there or um, just go to mcsquares.com. And, uh, uh, and you can also uh, message me on the, on the space if you're interested in that. Awesome. Thanks for coming on. Thank you, guys. Appreciate Thank you. it. You've been listening to Turnpikers, a show about the people who make up the Denver and Boulder tech community. You can reach us directly and discover more information at turnpikers.com and follow us at Turnpikers on Twitter. Please send us your questions and recommend future guests.